I invite you to turn with me this morning to the epistle, Paul's epistle, to Timothy, first epistle, to Timothy chapter 1. And we are going to be reading verses 12 through 16, Paul, as he writes to young Timothy, a pastor. He gives a bit of biographical detail concerning himself. Is the Apostle Paul, and he says there, beginning at verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent person, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is tr- trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that, it, that in me, as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We have here in verse 15 one of five faithful sayings in the pastoral epistles. And Bible commentator Guy King has descriptively summarized these as follows. The faithful saying, number one, concerning our life's salvation. That's what we have here in our text this morning. The faithful saying concerning our life service. First Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. The faithful saying concerning our life suffering. First Timothy 4, 9 and 10. The faithful saying concerning our life's sanctification, Titus chapter 3, verse 8. And the faithful saying concerning our life's secret, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses, verse 11. This, Paul says, is a faithful saying. It is trustworthy and it is worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And we have here in these words the whole essence of Advent. When we talk of Advent, when we speak of Advent, or as some would say Christmas, we're actually talking about that momentous historic event in the coming of our Lord Jesus into this world. And we want this morning, in studying verse 15 and looking at verse 15 and surrounding verses, to consider four things in our study this morning. First of all, we want to consider the reality of his coming, the reality of his coming. How do we know it to be so that our Lord Jesus did in fact enter into this world. 
And note the opening words of verse 15. Paul tells us how we know it to be a fact that our Lord Jesus entered this world. He says, the saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy. And implied in these words is that this momentous event of our Lord's entry into human history is attested by the declaration of the inspired, infallible word of God. And it's interesting to note here that Paul makes no attempt to prove or establish arguments for the event of Christ's coming into this world. Instead, he appeals to ha logos, that is the word, or the saying concerning that event. And here's the truth. The fact is, were you and I seeking to establish the veracity of an event, our first line in approaching this would not be to appeal to some saying. Rather, we'd seek to call attention, first of all, to what we might call demonstrable, demonstrably concrete evidences, such as receipts, fingerprints, the corroboration of eyewitness testimonies, or, if you want to be more current, Twitter files. Paul grounds the reality of Christ's entry into the world and what he deems the trustworthy saying concerning it. And we know that he has to be referring to nothing other than the Word of God because the Scriptures, the Word of God, is the only truly and absolutely trustworthy word there is. Only the word of God it is that cannot lie, nor in any way err. Indeed, in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 6, the apostle John was told by the angel concerning those things he had heard and seen, concerning the revelation of Jesus Christ, the angel said to him, these words are trustworthy and true. Now the question is, why does Paul cite the word of God as the basis, as the grounds for the reality of Christ's advent into the world? Why does he base the reality of Christ's entry into the world on this saying from the word of God? And I want to suggest to you two possible reasons why he did so. Number one is the fact that he's speaking here of one who is more than simply another human being. If, for example, I said to you, Patrick entered the world, or David entered the world, or, 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 some, or whoever here entered the world, that would not be a problem. That would be what? Historically verifiable. We could go into evidences, we could go into birth certificates, we could talk to people who were around when I was born. That would not be a problem. Notice in this regard, Paul did not say, notice what he did not say. He did not say that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In fact, there are many people in Jesus' day who had that name, Jesus. Jesus was a common name. Jesus really signified what? His humanity. 
The angel was told, you will call his name Jesus, or he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus was his human name. But note here that Paul specifically says in verse 15 that Christ Jesus came into the world. And here's the point. Whenever the name Christ goes with Jesus in Scripture, what is always in view is the deity of Christ, is the deity of our Lord Jesus. The fact that he is the incarnate divine Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. And that being the case, it therefore means that his coming into the world was a miraculous, supernatural event, the reality of which can only be appreciated and accepted by faith. You see, it's one thing to say that Jesus, as man entered into the world, that can be historically verified. In fact, you have people like Josephus and other historians who attest to the historicity of Jesus. But, listen, it is quite another thing to assert that he entered into this world as the divine Son of God. That is what? A faith statement. That, my friends, is not subject to human empirical investigation. And how do we know that mere human reason, mere empirical observation and study cannot attest to the fact that Jesus was the divine Son of God? Because, listen, when he was around on earth, there are people who saw him, there are people who knew him, they saw the miracles that he did, and yet they did not believe that he was Christ, the Son of God. As we said, that event of his coming into the world, that is, the God-man, it was a miraculous, supernatural event, which in the nature of the case means that we cannot prove it by human means. We can accept it, and we must accept it. Why? Because the Word of God asserts it to be true. Now, this is not to say, listen, when you read Luke's Gospel, for example, Luke chapter 1, as he begins his gospel concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, here's what Luke says. Luke says, listen, for as many have undertaken to set forth in order those things which, which were accomplished among us, he says this, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect knowledge of these things from the very beginning, that is through investigation, through human sources, to set before you an orderly account of the things that are most certainly believed among us. Now watch this. The apostles had special revelation where they knew that he was none other than the Son of God. The apostle Peter saw him. The apostle Peter was taken aback. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What did Jesus say to him? He said, Simon, he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And here's the point. How do you and I know that Jesus entered into this world. We know that based on the apostles' testimony as recorded in Scripture, as recorded in the book. No human sense, mere human sense and reason cannot tell us that Jesus came into the world as the divine Son of God. 
Because, as we said earlier, when people were on earth, when they saw him back then, over 2,000 years ago, they did not believe him to be such, even when they saw the miraculous works. That is why we read in John chapter 1, 11 and 12, John says this, He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become the sons of God, here it comes, even to those who what? Not reason their way to him, not go through empirical observations concerning him, but to those who believe on his name. And so it is then that 1 Timothy 3.16 regards the manifestation of our Lord Jesus, his coming into this world. Here's how 1 Timothy chapter 3 characterizes it. It characterizes it as what? A mystery. What is a mystery? A mystery is a sacred, revealed secret. In fact, the etymology of the word carries the idea, one, one writer puts it like this, it, it carries the idea of stopping the mouth, and the imagery is that of wonderment, of awe. Here's what Paul says, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, he says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, referring to Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. So here's the point. Our Lord's entry into the world was a supernatural event, a miraculous event that can only be received by faith. Faith not in human reason, Faith not in human argumentation, faith not in human empirical investigation, but faith in the faithful, trustworthy saying of the word of God. Hence, Paul's Paul's line of argument to begin with is not empirical evidences, is not human investigation, is not human reason, but the faithful saying, or we can say the faithful word of God. And that's what we must believe. We affirm that our Lord Jesus Christ did in fact step in human history, regardless of what the critics say, regardless of what the, the, the skeptics say. Why? Because the word of God is infallible. The word of God cannot err. The word of God says so. He did, and we must believe it. In the second place, Paul grounds the reality of Christ entering into the world on the trustworthy saying of God's word. Because here's the point. God's word is surer and more reliable than the most impressive human witness. God's word is surer and more reliable than even the most impressive human witness. We see this idea running throughout Scripture. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Here's Peter's testimony. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is saying we saw him. We were there on the mount. We saw him with our two eyes, he's saying, as it were. Here's what he says. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men of God spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now what is Peter saying there? He's making the point that far greater than any eyewitness testimony, yes, far greater than even his personal eyewitness testimony, concerning the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus, Peter is saying that the written word of God, the scriptures, though written by men, were overseen by God, and the scriptures trump human experience. That's what he's saying. Peter is saying, listen, even though we saw him and we heard him, at the end of the day, it is the inscripturated word of God that matters. That's what he's saying. That is why Paul, in describing the reality of Christ's death and resurrection, it could say in First Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4, he says this, For I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to what I preached to you, the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Listen how Paul describes this gospel now. He says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. What is that gospel, Paul? He says this, that Christ died for sins, here it comes, in accordance with the scriptures. Yes, he's going to say, listen, Peter saw him, other apostles saw him, but he does not begin there. He begins with what? The record of scripture. He's saying here, listen, the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Here it comes again, in accordance with the scriptures. And my friends, that's why we are unapologetic when the critics will say you argue in circles because you say, how do you know that God exists? And how do you know that Jesus came into the world and died for sins? Because the Bible says so. Why? Because the Bible says so. And let me say this. Those skeptics, you see, those progressive so-called Christians, they also, watch this, they also reason in a circular fashion. Where do you get your authority? They'll cite some source. What is the truth or trustworthiness of that source? Because it is a evolution is a fact. And they'll go around in a circle. Evolution is a fact. And we are saying, look, God's word is the final arbiter when it comes to truth. What constitutes truth. And so at the end of the day, beloved, the reality of Christ's entry into the world 
is definitively, we would say, is definitively grounded on the saying or word that is faithful, namely the word of God. And let me say this, we can bank our lives on it. We can stake our security, our eternal security, on the faithful saying of the word of God. In fact, Paul would have us understand how emphatic this declaration is. Because in the Greek, in the Greek text, if you look, the word pistos comes first. What Paul is saying literally is this, faithful is the word. Faithful is the saying. My friends, I commend that word to you this day. You're not saved. This is a faithful saying. It is a fact. Whether or not we want to believe it, that Christ Jesus came into the world, Paul says, to save sinners. So we've looked at the reality of Christ coming into the world. Let's consider, secondly, the respect or capacity in which he came into the world. The respect or capacity in which he came into the world. First of all, he came as God in the flesh. He came as God in the flesh. And that he came in as God in the flesh implies that he existed long before his birth. That's what it means. Unlike yours and mine, his birth was not the beginning of his existence. He existed long before he came to this earth as man, as a babe in Bethlehem. Before he came as a babe in Bethlehem, he existed, the word of God teaches from all eternity. Listen to the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Micah says there that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Known from all eternity as the word ha-logos. It is said of him in John chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Similarly, Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 puts it like this. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Watch this. And he is before all things and in him all things exist or all things cohere. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, he is identified as the one who is and who was and who is to come, an emphatic way of referring to his eternal pre-existence. That was why he could look at the Jews of his days who were challenging him, and he could say to them in John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, listen, before Abraham, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they clearly understood what he meant because they took up stones, we are told, to stone him. Why? Because they thought that he was blaspheming. It is only God Almighty who can say something like that. 
Second, our Lord Jesus came into the world as an expression of the love of God for the world. He came into this world as God, and we are saying now he came into this world as an expression of the love of God for fallen humanity. John, who is sometimes referred to as the apostle of love, would have us know the defining standard of love at its highest expression. Listen to John in 1 John 4, 9. John says this, In this is the love of God. In this the love of God was manifest among us. How, John, listen, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then we have that well-known text of John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now here's the point. Even a cursory reading of the New Testament will readily show us how much Jesus, the Son of God, meant to God the Father. You see, co-eternal with God and sharing the very glory of God from all eternity, John 17 and verse 5, he was, that is Jesus, he was and is the only begotten beloved Son of God such that John chapter 1 verse 18 presents him, portrays him as dwelling where? In the Father's bosom. That's how it is literally in the Greek. Modern versions would say at his side, but literally in the Greek it is in his bosom. In fact, this is consistent with what we find earlier where he says the word was with God. And you have heard me say before that the word with, the preposition with carries the idea of facing. The word was facing God. It is a position of what we might call profound intimacy of profound abiding endearment. That's how much the Lord Jesus Christ means to God the Father, which means that when God gave his only Son, when God gave his only begotten Son, what it means then that in sending him into the world, God effectively gave everything he had. In sending his Son into the world, his Son who was specially dear to him, God gave of himself, plucking out his heart as it were, giving it to a lost and dying world. And when we think of the world into which our Lord Jesus stepped into, into which he came, when we think of this world into which he was sent, the Father sent him, a world of sin, darkness, and death, we see something of the extremely low depths into which our Lord Jesus sunk when he entered human history, when he stepped into our world. For you see, his coming into the world necessarily involved his uniting himself with our humanity, with our humanity, with our flesh, in all of its weakness, in all of its limitations, of course, without sin. When we look at the Lord Jesus, if you were around in the days of the Lord Jesus and you looked at him, he would look like what? Any one of us, he would look like a normal human being. He ate, he had to eat. 
He slept, in fact, one time he fell asleep in a boat. He was tired. He experienced all the limitations. He knew what human frustration was. He could say to his disciples, how long shall I put up with you? He was genuinely man, and he stepped. When he came into this world, you know, it was not a promotion. When a king or royalty or some dignitary enters into some region, one would expect there's going to be what? Hearty acceptance. But listen, when our Lord Jesus stepped into this world, you know, it was a step of condescension for him. In fact, we are told that when he came into this world, John says, his own people received him not. In fact, by the time he started his public ministry, you see, and he stood up in the synagogue teaching just one sentence, and they were ready to throw him over a cliff. He had to worm his way out. He had to escape. He went through all the frustrations. He went through all the limitations apart from sin. He went, he knew what it was to, to, to be hungry. He knew what it was to be rejected. And who are we talking about? We are talking about the divine son of God, the one who was worshipped from all eternity, the one whom angels adore. This Jesus, the son of God, came into our sin-cursed earth and he suffered all kinds of indignities. In fact, when he was born, listen, there was no place Mary could have gone, his mother, that was decent, that was proper. When he was born, where did she place him? In a feeding trough. In a feeding trough. That's how low our Lord Jesus stood. He who is the divine king. In fact, if you notice in verse 17 how he is described, he is the king, eternal, immortal. And that was the kind of treatment that was meted out to the divine son of God when he stepped into human history. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, underscoring the truth that our Lord Jesus stepped into our weakness, our misery, our poverty, Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Such a profound act of condescension, my friend, speaks volumes of the lavish, unbounded Grace of God, love of God for sinful, fallen humanity. And mark you, it was a love that was not in response to anything that was attractive in us. It was a love that responded not to any good that was in us. In fact, there was none. There was nothing of any movement in our hearts toward God we were rebels against him for while we were yet sinners, while we were still rebels, was when our Lord Jesus stepped from the portals of glory. He entered into a world, our sin-cursed earth. He identified with us except, of course, apart from sin. And he took upon himself our misery, our poverty. What condescension. 
As the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4 verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The respect or capacity in which our Lord Jesus came into the world, number one, he came into the world as God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Number two, he came into the world as an expression of the love of God for a fallen world. And here's a third respect in which he came into this world. He came into the world as an act of obedience to his father. As many as 33 times in John's gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying that he was sent from heaven by the father. In John 4.34, he declared, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He said in John 5.30 that he could do nothing on his own because he was seeking not his own will, but the will of him who sent him. Here is words in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who what? sent me. We have there the language of sold out obedience to God. When Jesus entered this world, that entry, beloved, was an act of obedience to the will of his Father. Now, the writer of the Hebrews gives us an inside peek as to what was involved in our Lord's coming into this world, particularly as it relates to his obedience to the will of the Father. We have been through the book of Hebrews, we are going through the book of Hebrews, and the writer makes the point in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 that in view of the fact that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, Hebrews 10 verse 4, he records the Lord Jesus Christ as saying to the Father when he came into the world. Here's how the writer captures the Lord Jesus speaking to the Father when he came into the world. Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, you see, Jesus himself came, and just to backtrack a little, you see how important the book is? He says, as it is written of me in the book, I have come to do your will, O God, your law, your will is within my heart. We see here, beloved, that in obedience to his Father, Christ, in coming into this world, had to become what? Incarnate. He had to assume human flesh. He had to take on human form. He had to take on a human body. Why? So that he might die as a sacrifice for sins. That is why we read these words in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to latch on to. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Such was the attitude of humble, selfless, servant-like obedience of the Lord Jesus to the will of the Father. His coming into this world, we are saying, was an act of obedience to his Father's will. And what did that will consist of? It consists, first of all, consisted first of all in his taking on human body, being born as a man. It involved ultimately his dying for sins and his rising from the dead so that we might have eternal life. This brings us to a third point. The reality of his coming into the world, the respect or capacity in which he came into the world, and now the reason for his coming into the world. Not the C part of verse 15. What was the reason for his coming into the world? Paul says there, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is in keeping with John chapter 3, verse 17, where John expressly says, For God did not send, there you have it, there God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, what does it mean to be saved? It might seem a simplistic question, but it's not a simplistic question. We have to look, what does it mean to be saved according to Scripture? And in Scripture, salvation related to the word saved, conveys the idea of deliverance or rescue. Everybody knows that, right? But deliverance or rescue from what? You see, that's the point. And the Bible teaches that when God saves, what is God's saving program all about? It is about his rescuing or delivering us from, among other things, the domain of darkness. We see that in Colossians chapter 1.13. He rescued us. He snatched us, is the idea there, from the domain of darkness. And he translated us or carried us across into the kingdom of his dear son. When a person is saved, and this is Jesus' mission, Jesus' agenda, that person is snatched from the domain of darkness, from the domain of Satan, rescue from sin, rescue from the penalty of sin. Rescue from the power of sin, and when Jesus comes back, there will be what? Rescue from the very presence of sin. So rescue from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13. Rescue from sin, Satan, and death, Matthew 1.21, Hebrews 2.14 and 15. But listen, rescue or deliverance from what else? The wrath of God. Let me say this, my friend. Many people do not believe this, but there's a real wrath of God to come. There's what we might call the existential wrath of God. What is the existential wrath of God? In other words, the wrath of God that occurs in human history. Even now, God is judging. And that is his existential judgment because it's happening here and now. But here's the point. There's what we call the eschatological judgment. That is to say, the judgment that is to occur at the end of the ages when Jesus comes back. Here's the point, my friends. Every person who is outside of Christ is going to stand before him. And they are going to face his wrath. question is, are you saved? Do you know him? Jesus came not to condemn, he came to what? Save. 
And if you are not saved, you need to be saved, my friends. Scripture speaks of Christ coming into the world to save human, fallen humanity as follows, as his coming to give his life a ransom for many. We were held in the domain of darkness. We were under the wrath of God. What did Jesus do? By his death, he ransomed us. Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 speaks of this salvation as his having sent by God, Jesus having been sent by God to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. God saves us from what? He saves us from the bondage of law keeping in order to find salvation. The glorious news of the gospel this day, my friends, is this. We don't have to be counting a list of how many things we have done. 613, 614 laws. Which have we kept? Which have we broken? Why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And the good news is he came into the world to redeem those who were under the bondage, under the tyranny of law as a way of finding salvation. Scripture speaks of his coming into the world that, he might, that we might live through him, 1 John 4, 9. That we, he might be a propitiation for sins, 1 John 4, verse 10. What does that mean? That he might satisfy the justice, the wrath of God that was due to us on account of our sins. God, the Bible says, Romans three twenty five has set him forth. He sent him into the world, and he has set him forth as a what? A propitiation for our sins, as a satisfaction of divine justice. But the question is, how precisely, whom precisely did Christ come into the world to save? Very important question, whom did Christ come into the world to save? Look at the text, verse 15. Note again, verse 15. He came into the world, and we're winding down. He came into the world, watch this, to save sinners. To save sinners. Note that carefully. Who are sinners? Because there are people who will tell you, I'm not really a sinner. I'm not really bad after all. I say my prayers every night. I'm good to my cats, my dogs, my neighbors. I'm very hospitable. I'm kind-hearted. People, people think they're good. Who are sinners? Here's a point in a word. Sinners are those who have missed the standard, the mark of God's righteousness, have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And who know themselves to be in woeful deficit before God. And let me say this, add to that, in an unqualified manner. What do I mean by that? It's not I'm a sinner, but. It's, that, it's not that I'm not that bad after all. To be a sinner means that before God, you cannot do any good to please God. If you are not saved, it matters not your sincerity. It matters not, you can't even go before God and say, listen, I didn't know what I was doing. Because notice what Paul is going to say later. He says he received mercy. Why? Because he did it in ignorance. So, what, so that even sins of ignorance receive a, receive, need a whole lot of mercy and grace before a just and holy God. 
You'll not hear this many places, my friend, but hear this. Unless you see yourself and come to know yourself to be a sinner, to be no good, to be lost, to be outside of God's favor, Christ will not help you. Christ will be of no benefit to you. He came expressly for sinners. He did not come to call to save morally upright people. In fact, he himself declared in Matthew 9, 13, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said further in Luke 5, 31, 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said in Luke chapter 5, 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. He came specifically, beloved, for those who know themselves to be sinners in need of his saving grace. You see, that's the difference between the, the biblical Christianity and the religions of the world. The religions of the world say you have to be good, you have to work your way to God, you have to keep how many laws, you have to be morally upright to merit God's favor, to merit God's acceptance. The Bible says no. You come to God as a sinner, and on the basis of his grace, he forgives. I'm going to fast forward and just mention the last point briefly. I'm leaving out a whole lot of stuff. So the reality of his coming into the world, the respect or capacity in which he came into the world, the reason for his coming into the world finally our response, what should be our response to the truth of his coming into the world? And again, our text answers. Our text suggests that ours should be a response of hearty welcome, of hearty reception to this glorious truth. Note again verse 15, we are told that being trustworthy, it's deserving of full acceptance. That is to say, by faith, it should be personally and wholeheartedly appropriated without the slightest reservation. Why? Because this is coming straight from heaven. This is coming straight from God himself. It is a faithful saying. It is trustworthy. You can stake your life, your soul on it because it's true. The question this morning is, as we close, having by the Spirit of God heard his call, trusting that, those of you who are not saved, maybe listening by way of Zoom, will you not come to him and discover what Paul and so many others have discovered of the reality of his saving grace? This, at the end of the day, is the whole message of Advent, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners of all kinds, sinners of all degrees. You say, how can I be saved? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. If you really and sincerely see yourself to be a sinner, as the word of God says you are, and you'll come to him, confessing, Owning him as your Savior and Lord, you will be saved. Trust that if you're not saved, you'll do that this very day. If you are saved, let's all revel in the fact of the beauty and wonder of his saving grace.